Welcome. You are listening to a sermon presented at the First Church of Christ in Elkins, West Virginia. This message is given by pastor and teacher Jason Brandon. Jason will be selecting passages from the Word of God and showing us how to apply God's Word in our lives today. He will also be showing us why we need Jesus. How can faith, God, and the Bible have more influence in your daily life? What is God saying to us today? For this and more, stay tuned. Reading from Luke chapter 12, verse 49, Jesus says, I have come to bring fire on the earth, and how I wish it were already kindled. And again, from Hebrews chapter 12, verse 28, we read, Therefore, since we are receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken, let us be thankful. And so worship God acceptably with reverence and awe, for our God is a consuming fire. I like that imagery of fire. Fire is terrifying. Fire, fire can be dangerous. Um, due, to a, due to a slight cooking accident when I was in junior high, and by slight I mean seven fire trucks, um, we got a new kitchen out of the deal. Um, I, fire is dangerous. But man, it's useful. I'm, I, food, warmth, light. God is a flame. For some, he is a dying ember, once roaring, but now barely a, member, a memory, smoldering away. For some, he's a flickering candle, never constant, wavering back and forth. For some, he's a faulty pilot light. A couple times a year, he stoked the flame. For some, he's a cheery fireplace. Eh, He's good for warm fuzzies. Sleep well at night by him. But biblically, our God is a consuming fire. He destroys his enemies. He refines his followers. His followers, his true followers, do not flicker or gutter or smolder. They burn with his fire. In Zechariah chapter 13, verse 7, we read, Awake, O sword! Against my shepherd, against the man who is close to me, declares the Lord Almighty. Strike the shepherd, and the sheep will be scattered, and I will turn my hand against the little ones. In the whole land, declares the Lord, two-thirds will be struck down and perish, yet one-third will be left in it. This third I will bring into the fire. I will refine them like silver and test them like gold. They will call on my name, and I will answer them. I will say, they are my people, and they will say, the Lord is our God. The problem with a refining fire is that fire is hot. And the very nature of refinement that burns away the dross on those of us who are living, not unfeeling ore and rocks and metal, refining fire can hurt. Purging fire can hurt. We are in Ezra chapter 10 today. Finishing our study of the book of Ezra, um, our context is that we read about, you know, 70 years earlier, rounding off, Judah had been conquered by the Babylonians, taken off into captivity, but then the Babylonians themselves got conquered by the Persians, and Cyrus, king of Persia, sent the Jews back to the land, just a remnant. Most of the people, 70 years later, most of the people didn't want to come back, just a remnant, that, that... 
Zechariah talks about that two-thirds, one-third. We don't know the exact numbers, but it was a smaller portion that went back. Most of those, most of those who really didn't care about being Jewish stayed in Babylon. They didn't have to go back. Those that went back wanted their, their heritage, their history. And we're reminded of, you know, Abraham had Isaac, and Isaac had the two boys, Jacob and Esau. Well, I say Jacob and Esau, but Esau was the older one. But Esau got rid of, Esau should have had the, the rights of the firstborn. But Esau didn't care about it. He didn't care about God's promises to Abraham and Isaac, and he literally sold it for a cup of soup. But Jacob wrestles with God, would do anything for God's blessing had his hip wrenched out of socket in a, in a wrestling match with God himself because he refused to let go until God gave him the blessing, no matter how much it literally hurt him. That refining fire hurts and, and purifies the people, the remnant of Israel, the, this, this remnant of Judah, returned to their land to rebuild their nation, and Ezra comes to oversee the rebuilding of God's temple. He came to provide leadership. But what we saw last week was that, that there was more rebuilding that needed doing. There were deeper problems. These people who wanted to give up being part of the, part of the masses, part of the just populace of the Persian Empire, they, like America, the Persian Empire were mutts. No, no offense. Most of us are mutts. Most of us are not pure in our heritage because America is the melting pot. And, and in America, that's great. <laughs> that wasn't what God wanted of his people at that time in, in the world you know, 2,500 years ago. Uh, so, so the people were separating themselves from, from Persia, returning to Judah, and then they lost their way. And they did begin to intermarry with the people. And as we talked about, that problem was that in the intermarrying, we talked last week that, that Solomon's problem, he had two big problems. Number one was he had lots of wives. The Bible says, blessed is the man with one wife. Uh, you know, all those wives, was, there's never a point that God commands, be, commands the, the men in the Old Testament take lots of wives. They did it. He allowed it, but that didn't mean he liked it. But then the, pro, the bigger problem was not that just that Solomon had lots of wives. And they were foreign, and they brought in their foreign gods, and they distracted Solomon from worshiping God, and Solomon distracted the people of Israel from worshiping God. This chain reaction. And Ezra comes back and sees that the same thing is starting to happen again. Uh, Israel was in danger of being lost. Uh, the people were intermarrying, and even the priests, which to Ezra was understandably the most horrifying part, that even the priests were losing their way, their focus on God alone. Ezra came to help rebuild a temple. And he ends up rebuilding a whole lot more than just the temple. Um, and so we read chapter 10, because we left it kind of, we left, we left off at the end of chapter 9 last week. There was no solution yet. So Ezra chapter 10. While Ezra was praying and confessing, weeping and throwing himself down before the house of God, a large crowd of Israelites, men, women, and children, gathered around him. They too wept bitterly. And then Shechaniah, the son of Jael, one of the descendants of Elam, said to Ezra, 
we have been unfaithful to our God by marrying foreign women from the peoples around us. But in spite of this, there is still hope for Israel. Now let us make a covenant before our God to send away all these women and their children in accordance with the counsel of my Lord and of those who fear the commands of our God. Let it be done according to the law. Rise up. This matter is in your hands. We will support you, so take courage and do it. And so Ezra rose up and put the leading priests and Levites and all Israel under oath to do what had been suggested. And they took the oath. Then Ezra withdrew from before the house of God and went to the room of Jehonanan, son of Eliashib. While he was there, he ate no food and drank no water because he continued to mourn over the unfaithfulness of the exiles. Proclamation was then issued throughout Judah and Jerusalem for all the exiles to assemble in Jerusalem. Anyone who failed to appear within three days would forfeit all his property in accordance with the decision of the officials and elders and would himself be expelled from the assembly of the exiles before anybody freaks out and says, three days, that's all they've got. We've heard that Israel as a nation is approximately the size, I think I've heard of New Jersey. it's, It's a small country. However, post Persian captivity, the remnant occupied such a small territory, it was about the, con- it was about the size of Randolph County. Um, that's just how big the country was. Um, everybody could get there in three days. This wasn't, this wasn't a burdensome task. Within the three days, all the men of Judah and Benjamin, why Judah and Benjamin? Because that's the only two tribes left. The northern ten tribes which had called themselves Israel, had been conquered by the Assyrians and they're gone. The southern two tribes, uh, after that civil war, was just Judah Benjamin. They were the only two that were left of the southern tribes. So we're reminded that that's all that's left of, of Israel. All the men of Judah and Benjamin had gathered in Jerusalem, and on the 20th day of the ninth month, all the people were sitting in the square before the house of God, greatly distressed, by the occasion and because of the rain. I like that, I just, I like that little detail. Just, it, was, it, was, it was so bad, even the weather wasn't cooperating. Then Ezra the priest stood up and said to them, You've been unfaithful. You've married foreign women, adding to Israel's guilt. Now make confession to the Lord, the God of your fathers, and do his will. Separate yourselves from the peoples around you and from your foreign wives. The whole assembly responded with a loud voice, You're right. We must do as you say, but there are many people here, and it is the rainy season, so we can't stand outside. Besides, this matter cannot be taken care of in a day or two because we've sinned greatly in this thing. Let our officials act for the whole assembly, and then let everyone in our towns who has married a foreign woman come at a set time along with the elders and judges of each town until the fierce anger of our God in this matter is turned away from us. Only Jonathan, son of Asahel, and Jeaziah, son of Tikvah, supported by Meshulam and Shabbatai, the Levite, opposed this. So the exiles did as was proposed. Ezra the priest selected men who were family heads, one from each family division, and all of them designated by name. On the first day of the tenth month, they sat down to investigate the cases. And by the first day of the first month, they finished dealing with all the men who had married foreign women. This is a tough sermon. Last week was tough. This one's tough. These, these are two tricky sermons to get through. Um, 
So let's look at the un- let, let, let's look at the point of these chapters because in some sense, yes, this doesn't apply to us. We're not the Jewish remnant from the Babylonian captivity being resettled in our promised land. So there are some knowing that there are some some principles that God wants to get across to us. We have to build the right foundation. Uh, we had a storm yesterday. The, f- the funny thing, I am. I am going through sermons that I went through. I mean, I'm changing them. They're not just printing them off and calling it quits. I am going through sermons that I preached you know, 10, 12, 15 years ago. The last time I preached this sermon on Ezra chapter 10 was right after a big storm. And I find the poeticism that we had a decent little storm yesterday. God, I want to say God was very good. I was mowing yesterday, and the first raindrop fell right when I put the lawnmower in the garage and I just want to say that I'm very grateful to God for that. Um, we were reminded trees fell yesterday. It was, a, it was a rough storm yesterday. I've heard of already about broken sidewalks and fallen trees. Um, that Sometimes trees fall because while the tree may look big and healthy, it doesn't have the root structure to support the trees. That's why the little trees don't blow over so much, but sometimes it's the really big ones that have overgrown their roots. Um, they risk that foundation the the builders generation the the uh what we call the builders generation uh 60 two two-thirds christian 65 percent christian the uh baby boomers generation one-third christian 35 percent christian uh the busters generation Half again, 15% Christian. If you think that you know where the trend is going, it accelerates. Um, the, the bridgers, the millennials, 5, 5%, a third of the previous. The current, can, can it get smaller? Sure. England, England is down to about 2%, uh, uh, 3 to 2% Christian, and Scotland's less than that. We're, we're, on, we're on track to keep shrinking at the rate that we're, we're going. Um, one, I've said this before, one out of four kids raised in the church stay in the church. They go off to college, they're exposed to other ideas, they say this is a waste of time, they walk away. The real problem is not that we're shrinking. I think the bigger fear is that so many of us maybe kind of shrug and say, well, it happens. We don't, we don't care enough. Uh, I'll tell you why I think I think the church is shrinking in the United States. Uh, I I think this was a country founded on Christian principles. It didn't have to be. Uh, I, I don't know that our founding fathers owed us that, but with the pilgrims and 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 the faith of men like and if read read the words of George Washington, he was a man of faith. The faith of these founding fathers, um, we don't have that anymore. That foundation we've walked we've walked away from Harvard was founded as a Bible college. To get into Harvard, you needed to already know Greek and Latin so that in, in Hebrew so that you could read the Bible in Greek and Hebrew. They would teach you other languages while you were there, including even Syriac, just so you could learn one of the early Bible translations. It was a school for training preachers. But at some point, the board at Harvard realized that's not where the money is. And it changed. And that's just a microcosm of where our country has been. At some point, 
our nation abandoned its Christian foundations. And I want to be clear, I'm, I'm not a nationalist in that, in that sense. I'm not saying that the nation didn't have a right to do that. It's just I find it a shame because God loves people and he wants people to be saved and he saves us through the church and through Christ. And as our country becomes less and less Christian, it's less and less people saved. I think that that's a tragedy. But I don't know that, you know, that, that doesn't mean that I think that we need to completely shift gears and only elect preachers as presidents. That's also not what I'm, I'm, I'm saying, because I don't think that that's what the pur- this country was not founded for the purpose of being Christian, but I do think that it was successful in its early days because of those Christian principles that we've abandoned. I think as, however, as a church, so then the question becomes, why is the church shrinking? Why can't the church... This building... I've had people tell me, this building used to be full on a Sunday morning. Um, Juanita Morgan used to talk about, if you came late, you stood. That's not a problem anymore. So what population in the U.S. is not shrinking? But the population of the churches are shrinking. So we do have to ask the question, what, what are we doing wrong? And this is not just this church. Every church around, uh, just churches around the country are, are shrinking. And maybe we do need to ask the question, why are churches failing to attract people to the gospel? We're not trying to sell a used car. The gospel is the most valuable thing ever. Why are we having trouble? And I, th- and I think churches struggle with their foundation. Churches, it's easy to do stuff at churches. Churches, people enjoy churches that do stuff. Programs, committees, youth events, support groups, board meetings, things to keep us busy. Because when we're busy, we're distracted. We don't have to think and we don't have to... Showing up for meetings, that part's easy. But, but I've known that people don't always... They want, to be involved in the, they want to be involved in the church. They want to be involved in a church that's active. But that's different than they want to be active. A lot of times people just want to kind of coast on other people's, uh, other people's, I don't know if success is the right word, but activities. We're too busy. We don't have time for it ourselves. But it looks good if the church has these things going on, if I'm a part of that kind of a church. The problem, though, is that biblically programs, stuff, doesn't, they're not biblical, and they don't save us. Building programs. Churches that do building programs always see a bit of a bump in their attendance. 25 to 50% if you build on. If we were to build an addition onto the side of the church, attendance would probably go up. But that's just stuff. That bump doesn't always last. Um, you know, bricks and plumbing and e- are easy. Sometimes we can fool ourselves that a stuff means that we're a successful church. Uh, Corinth in the New Testament. On the surface, Corinth is the one church that gets two letters. In fact, if you combine the chapter length of 1st and 2nd Corinthians, it's longer than any of the Gospels. There's more written to the church of Corinth than Matthew or Mark or Luke or John wrote about Jesus. On the surface, they might, you might think then that that's a successful church. And we, and we know there's even two missing letters of the Corinthians. Because 1 Corinthians refers to a previous letter, and 2 Corinthians refers to something that seems to be between 1 Corinthians and 2 Corinthians. And all of these letters 
seem to address problems in the Corinthian church. In God's eyes, they were not a healthy church. The biggest problem that the church in Corinth had was that it had lost its love, its love for God, its love for the people. So we get to the book of Ezra, and we see that Ezra came to rebuild the temple. And we're going to say, it's a temple, why do we care? And, and I would argue that was where Ezra hit the point too. It does no good to build a building if the people's focus isn't on God. It's just a building. If the people aren't interested in being separated from the world, which is a fancy word for being holy, right? Or holy is, I guess, the fancy word of being separated. Called out of, the word church is a translation of the Greek word ekklesia, which means those who are called out. If they weren't called out from the people, if they were just intermerged and mixed and a melting pot of the people, then they weren't the called out ones, they weren't the set apart holy ones. What's the point of building a temple? The building can't save them. It's our relationship with God that saves us. And so Ezra realized that there needed to be a better foundation than the temple. God had to be put first. If God is not first, then he's not the foundation. That's the essentials of our faith. And so we move from, if God is our foundation, where does that leave our family? How do we build our family the right way. So when we read these last two chapters, it might make us uncomfortable, and I would argue that it should. So let me reiterate a few things. God loves marriage. He established it in the beginning. He hates divorce. Yeah, abuse and, and unfaithfulness, sometimes divorces happen, and, 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 my, and I would argue God hates that just as much, if not more. than it. He, he regrets that it happens. It makes him mourn. There are some people that get married, and, and they probably shouldn't have got married. And these, thing, these things happen, and it breaks God. That's why marriage is, is, is a big deal. I do think that people enter into it a little too flippantly. Marriage matters. It matters to God. Um, and, and, and that's an important context for this. We looked last week at the reasons why God was upset at these foreign marriages. We've talked about them. Um, the issue was... The issue was... The, the paganism that came with it. We talked about the fact that Moses was married to an Egyptian girl named Zipporah. Um, King David's great, great, I don't know how many greats are in there, not that many. Grandmother, Ruth, was a Moabite. Um, David had fighting men who were Hittites. Uriah was one of them, but he wasn't the only one. You can read about Gittites, which was what you call someone from Gath, which is one of those... Hittite cities. Um, sorry, one of those Philistine cities. He had Philistines in his army too. So we've got Gittites and Hittites and, and Moabites and Egyptians that become part of the people of Israel. So it's not that God's like a racist. It's not that he's against foreigners. But the whole point is they became part of the people of Israel. These people abandoned their paganism to become part of Israel. I... I think, therefore, that it's more than reasonable that the people that Ezra's talking about have not abandoned their pagan gods, their foreign ways, that they don't want to be Jewish. Um, now, I will also point out that these people that were told you need to abandon your, your, your foreign wives, 
They didn't have to. I mean, they could, they could leave. Again, most people didn't come back. Most people that were in Babylon stayed in Babylon. These people didn't have to stay in this remnant. Um, they, they would give up their property and their money, but they could keep their family if they want to. But the big thing that they were giving up in doing that, like Esau, they were giving up that heritage of God himself. And that, that was the problem. Um, they could, the people could give up all of that heritage if they, if they wanted to. Nobody was making them stay Jewish. Um, they could leave, keep their families, but it would be putting family over their heritage. And at that time, God's, God's commands were to the people of Israel. They were a light to the pagan nations. And, and, and today it's great that we don't have to be any nationality. But back then, at that time, God's light to the world was through the people of Israel. Um, it's, there's application to this today. The kids aren't in here. They're in the back, and that's, and, and that's appropriate. Parents, encourage your kids. Um, don't marry non-Christians. I said this a little bit last week. I know so many people who assumed that their husband or their wife would one day come around. Sometimes it happens, but not often. Um, Missionary dating doesn't generally work. And honestly, the Bible says don't be unequally yoked. And we ignore that passage at our peril. One of the things that I respect here, that Ezra, who was the leader, isn't the one who pushed this. Um... He isn't the one that tells the people what to do. Ezra wept because it was a bad situation all the way around. He recognizes there are no easy answers here. He cared for the people. He cared for the families. He wished the situation hadn't begun. Sometimes our sin puts us into something of a no-win situation. We back ourselves in corners sometimes. He didn't force the solution on them. He simply let them know that he cared, and so did God. Ezra accomplished far more by his loving heart and his concern than he could have done by forcing the people. He let the people make this their decision. Too often people have to choose between family and God. Way too often God loses that choice. This time, the people chose God over their families. And that's painful. But I I need to be clear that that's lordship. Your family can't save you. Let's call it bluntly. We don't like it. But a family that is not built on God is lost. There's no salvation putting imperfect people first. If these people hadn't become Jewish, the way that Ruth and Uriah and others had done, if these people hadn't become Jewish, they might not have been in this problem. But it was the vast pagan foreign, not devoted to God, that Israel was in danger of losing its its very identity. They'd fought so hard to keep it. And they were just on the cusp of losing it again. It's a tough message. But it's dangerous to skip passages in the Bible. I think skipping over a tough passage uh, is its own trouble. We have to build our faith. You know what the difference between religion and faith is? Religion is stuff. Now, some of it may be useful stuff. I, I, I absolutely believe that. Board meetings and programs, these are useful. But they're not the point. Uh, religion keeps us busy, and it's a useful tool, but it's not the goal. It, it, again, it's, I've, I've shared this before. Vermont power drill doesn't make power drills. Vermont power drill makes holes. The drills are just how they do it. 
the purpose of the church is not board meetings and, and youth events and VBSs. That's not the purpose of the church. The purpose of the church is to help people have a relationship with God. Those events are how we do it. But if they didn't work, we could go to something that did work because those aren't our, our goals. And if faith is a relationship with God, that's what we're after. Abraham believed God, and it was credited to him as righteousness. The whole point of the, of the Bible is that God wants to have a deep relationship with us. Somebody might say, Jason, I don't know that I feel terribly close to God these days. And that would be a problem and, and something to be worked on. Any church that grows without knowing Jesus only has religion. Um, and religion alone, going through the motions, attending, but not being transformed into the image of Christ, that doesn't save. Religion doesn't save us. It's faith is a relationship with God that produces, you know that it's a relationship because it produces Christ-like change. And so sometimes a church that is numerically growing isn't really growing. Maybe one inch deep and three miles wide. We need more than programs and buildings. We need dynamic relationship with God. Yeah, people pick shallow churches a lot of times for a reason. Shallow is easy. It's like a giant kiddie pool. The advantage of a giant kiddie pool, you don't have to swim. But a shallow church, you will not grow. How far will we go to maintain our relationship with God? Israel had some tough changes to make. You could say, Jason, this is harsh. It, it is. It was harsh when God asked Abraham to sacrifice Isaac. Oh, he didn't have to go through with it. Yeah, but he thought he did, and he was prepared to. Until we deny everything and take up our cross, we cannot follow Jesus. And those are Jesus' words. And cross, we've turned the cross into a symbol a nice little piece of jewelry we wear. It was an ugly execution device. And Jesus says, that's what it means to follow me. It's harsh. Anyone that tells you otherwise is sugarcoating the true gospel message. But it's worth it. And really, at the end of the day, I will say that his burden, I find, is easier than the burden of the world with sin and everything else going on. Um, The world makes us bear much more and doesn't give us hope at the end. We must have a relationship with Christ. That is the faith that saves us. Our hymn of invitation. I don't know what our hymn of invitation is. Change my heart, O oh God. It is number 50. Okay. Well, no, that's not number 50. That's the next one. So it's not in our hymn book. Uh, people came, Ezra's mourning, and people came to watch him. Why were they watching him? That seems kind of creepy on the surface. But Ezra was consumed by a passion for the Lord. It was a fire burning within him. Be so consumed. Some people will come to be warmed by the fire. Some people will just come to watch you burn. That's okay, they come. And they, and they watch. Be the flame that people can't turn their eyes away from. Um, for the, burn for the Lord and let people come to him through you. Thank you for listening. You can contact us at our website, firstchurchofchristelkins.com, where you can also find out more. Have a nice week.